Thanks for joining us for today's sermon on the Brick Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Jared Callahan. I'm the lead pastor here at the Brick, and we're so excited that you're going to check out today's message. Our prayer is that each week the message inspires you, challenges you, and helps you connect to God, maybe in a brand new way. We also pray that you connect with us as a community, that it doesn't stop just with your connection with God, but it gives you an opportunity to connect with the people at the Brick Church. So don't hesitate to reach out. Let's jump into today's message. We are in week number three of Back to John, um, and if you're new with us, it's totally okay. You don't have to have caught up to where we're at to, to stay along with us today, um, but we are doing in, in John as we're taking a look at the gospel of John, and we're going verse by verse and walking through uh, what it means, the, some of the historical context, but most importantly, what we want to do is to take these verses, this understanding, the historical context, the understanding of what's going on in the gospel of John, and figure out how to apply it to our lives. That's the, that's the crux of scripture. At some point, I've got to go beyond on what I know about Jesus to actually knowing Jesus and walking with him. And that's the goal every time we read scripture. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, and what we're going to look at is, is the way that people come to follow Jesus. Okay, uh, The way that uh, people, as we finish out John chapter 1, we're going to be done with chapter 1 today. Um, and as we finish out John 1, we're going to look at two different ways that people come to follow Jesus. Um, what I'm going to call them are the saints and the skeptics. Um, there's two different ways that you may have come to follow Jesus and understand him and start to walk with him. Uh, and we're going to look at how Jesus calls his first disciples in John and understand what process they went through and what may be necessary for some of us. So we're going to take a look. Um, so far to catch you up, uh, John the Baptist has declared who Jesus is. Like, all right, we've, we know who he is. G- John the Baptist pointed uh, everybody to Jesus, said he's the son of God, the lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. So he's been identified to the public by John the Baptist. And um, then the next day after John the Baptist is there, he's got his disciples because John the Baptist also has disciples. He's hanging out and he points one more time to two of his disciples and says, hey, there's, there's the Lamb of God. There he is right there. And here's how uh, the disciples respond in verse 37 of John chapter 1. It says, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? So the first group that Jesus is calling, these two disciples, aren't yet Jesus' disciples. They're John's disciples, and yet they are abandoning John, it might seem like. Like, whatever, we're going to go with the better guy. Uh, and following Jesus, and they've got questions for him. Now, I would argue that in this case, uh, the two disciples are doing what John's told them to do. Right? There's a lot of commentators that suggest the same thing, that the two disciples are like actually listening to their rabbi, their teacher, who's John the Baptist, tell them, like, hey, that's him. So just like, this is what I came for. So if you really want to follow somebody, he's right there. And like, he's, they're actually kind of following in step with what John the Baptist is calling them to do. And then they come to Jesus. Um, and they come to Jesus with a certain amount of respect and authority, right? They already have called him a rabbi. This, this idea of rabbi is not just thrown around. You don't just use this term to anybody. You don't just puff somebody up by calling them a rabbi. They come to Jesus and they call him a rabbi. They've already given him a certain amount of authority in their lives before they ever started a conversation about what it meant to follow him. They've already described him. It says uh, it's translated teacher. Uh, the original King James translates it master. Like it's an authoritative term. It's, it's a show of respect. And so when they came to Jesus, the first two disciples, when they come to Jesus, they came from a trusted source. 
Because John the Baptist was someone that they trusted, they'd been following, they've seen the character of his life, they've seen how he lived, they saw John the Baptist, they were following John the Baptist, they respected John the Baptist. And so when someone they respected, someone they trusted, pointed them to Jesus, they followed. And for some of you, that's your story. For some of you, you would fall into not the skeptic story, you would fall into the saint story. Not that you're saintly, don't take your... Take your crown off for a second, uh, take your halo off for just a moment, but that you had family that you lived with that you trusted, and they told you about Jesus. And because you trusted them and because they were people that, that showed with their life that they were trustworthy, you didn't have a whole lot of reason to doubt who Jesus was. They pointed you to him, they, they, they showed you what church looked like, they showed you what Jesus looked like, and you really didn't wrestle with a lot of doubt because you had a trusted source that pointed you to Jesus, and they reflected it with their life. Like when you went home, when you went to hang out with that grandmother, that aunt, that, that mom, or that cousin that you know loved Jesus and pointed you to Jesus, you trusted them because you knew them well enough to know that their life reflected something, something that you wanted, something that you wanted to have in your life, and you, they, they were a trusted source. They pointed you to Jesus, so you already came to Jesus with a sense of authority in him. Like, okay... I, I don't know you yet. I'm maybe not following you yet, but my cousin told me about you. Uh, my mom told me about you. My uncle told me about you, and I, tr- I trust them as a source. And so when you came to Jesus, before you ever committed your life to following, you already had a bit of, okay, Rabbi, okay, Lord, okay, Jesus, let's see who you are. Now, what they do say is, where are you staying? It's kind of a weird like ask, like, what do you, where, where do you live at? Like, where, hey, that's the first thing you say with somebody you respect, like, Listen, officer, where do you live? Like, I'm sorry, don't, that's not, no. Like, you don't ask that question. But they want to know him. Uh, I think they want to see, like, who are you when everybody else isn't around? They've been around John the Baptist at his place, where he lives, how he lives. I think when they see rabbi, they've seen a lot of other rabbis, but if you're the Messiah, we need to see that you're the real deal. We need to see you behind the scenes. We need to see that you are behind the scenes, which you are in public. And so... um, Here's his response to them in verse 39. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Jesus' response, we're going to see this response again in another portion of John 1. Come and see. Jesus' response is to not say, like, here's my address, here's my credentials as the Messiah, here's my credentials as a teacher, as a rabbi, here are my credentials. Jesus' response to them is, come, come and see. Come, come see the place that I'm staying at. Come eat at my table. Sit down with me, dine with me, know me, and find out if I am who I say I am. Find out if I am who your trusted source said I was. And for us today that maybe came to Jesus and you fall under the saint category, not that we're that saintly, but you fall under the saint category because you had trusted sources that pointed you to Jesus. But at some point, my prayer for all of you is that it wasn't just somebody told you about Jesus, but that you came and you ate with Jesus. You dined at his table. You sat down and you got to know Jesus for you. You you got to understand who Jesus was in your life. He's He's not my grandmother's uh, God. He's not my, my uncle's God. He's not my cousins, my brothers, my sister's God. He's my God. He's my Lord. He's my rabbi. He's the one that I follow. He's not the one that I heard about. He's the one that I know. 
And I'm, I'm really, I honestly, I probably fit more in the skeptical category because I am a little bit skeptical about how and when we decide to follow Jesus, if we actually get to know him for ourselves or if we just know about him. And I'm really skeptical of, of using experiences as a barometer for things, like using our own emotions to gauge whether or not we really know Jesus. But at some point, you do need to know him. At some level, the experiences and the emotions that you have need to come in line with what you say you believe, right? There, there, it's truth in, in our own reality. It's not just true for Jesus. It's not just true for Scripture. You know that's true in your own reality. You can have somebody point you to somebody else and say, hey, you should, you should get to know them, right? Maybe somebody set you up with who you're married to now, and you trusted them. They set you up. They're like, hey, we're going to hook you up with a blind date with this person. You trusted them. Cool. But at some point, you got to sit down and eat with them. some point, you got to take them out on a date. You have to get to know them for you. You can't just decide. We don't live in an arranged marriage situation. You can't just decide, yeah, we're married. No, we haven't had dinner yet. We don't know each other yet. We don't live in the same household. But my parents told me they were good people, so now we're married, even though we don't actually know each other. You, you can't say, hey, I, I love my kids, and I really adore my kids, and only send them child support but never see them. It doesn't work that way. At some point, the relationship that Jesus is calling us to be in is come and see. Come sit at my table. Come dine with me. And so if you fit into the, the saint category where you, you came to know who Jesus was because somebody pointed you to him that you trusted, my question and the wrestle that I want to leave you with is, is do you know him for yourself? Are you, are you trying to sell a product that you've never tried? Or have you actually had moments with Jesus where he becomes your Lord, your Savior, your Master? Or are you living off of somebody else's testimony, somebody else's story? I mean, you trusted them. It doesn't mean they're lying. It just means that you're, you're, getting, you're, you're handing off something that's not yours. You're telling people about someone that you haven't met yet. And it's time to sit and dine with him. It's not, Jesus says, I didn't come for the, the saints. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for the sinner. And at some point, all of us sit at the table and realize oh, no matter how good my life was, no matter how healthy my parents were, no matter how healthy I was, no matter how sanctified I've lived, I'm in need of a savior. And until you sit and dine with him and find out, you look him in the face and realize you don't match up. You don't qualify to sit at his table. You don't qualify to be called to come and stay with him and find out where he lives. You don't qualify to be one of his followers and yet he calls you to come and see. You'll never really know him. Because once you sit at his table, you realize you are unworthy to sit. You're unworthy to dine with him. And that's the moment where you go, oh, okay, I'm glad I'm here because I wasn't worthy to be here. And yet I know you for myself. I've experienced you for myself. The second category is the skeptic. And so what happens here is uh, these followers come and see and they experience Jesus. They are they are good Jewish people, right? They follow John the Baptist. They've done what they've been told. They're really living it out. But eventually they move from what I was told to do to what I experienced, what I, what I know for myself, that I know who the Messiah is. I've met him. I've stayed where he stays. I understand who he is, and now I follow him. So as soon as they leave him, they're like, oh, this is the Messiah. And they go tell people about him. Uh, one of them is Andrew. One of those disciples is Andrew, and he goes and tells Peter. And then Peter comes to follow Jesus. And then they, they go and tell another guy named Philip. And then Philip goes to tell someone named Nathaniel. And as he goes to tell Nathaniel, here's, uh, here's, here's the response um, uh, from Nathaniel in verse 46. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything, come out, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. 
Nathaniel's response is, Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And Philip mimics what Jesus says, come and see. Now, I, I've heard people talk about this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like the, there's some preachers that would argue that like it's kind of just a joke, like ha ha, this comedy. Um, and there's one thing I found in scripture and that it is not very good at comedy. I mean, there's a lot of great narration in scripture, a lot of good literature that is utilized, but I have yet to see scripture that's real good at comedy. It's just not its purpose, not its design. I haven't seen any really comical places in scripture. I think, Phil, I think Nathaniel is a legitimate skeptic. And I think Nathaniel is well studied in the Old Testament and understands what the scriptures say, that there is nothing to indicate that anything good comes out of Nazareth. What are you talking about, Jesus of Nazareth? There's, there's no Messiah. There's no indication. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. How could he be the Messiah? How can he be even a Messiah? How could he be anything of any value? Because the only Messiah I know of comes out of Bethlehem. And you didn't say nothing about Bethlehem. You said Nazareth. And that's 90 miles away. That's a long distance in the first century. Not as, not as long now that we can drive 60 miles an hour to get there. Back then, it took a little while to make it to 90 miles. What good comes out of Nazareth? I don't think he's like poking fun. I think he's just a skeptic. I think he's just saying, you know what? How, why would you even assume that this guy can be the Messiah? Because I know my scriptures well enough to know that that's not him. That's nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And the response Philip has for Nathaniel is not what I would have. I'd be like, okay, let's look at the scriptures together. Let's sit down and debate this. Let's argue it for just a moment. Let's have a conversation about how you're not God and you can't know everything you think you know, Nathaniel. So stop telling me what you think you know about the Old Testament. I met a guy who knows stuff. You don't know anything, Nathaniel. You're just wrong. That's how I would, how I would argue with Nathaniel. No, no, no. Philip's response to Nathaniel is come and see. He doesn't spend time arguing with him about who Jesus is and about the Old Testament. And let's go verse by verse and figure this thing out. Let's go over the apologetics, Nathaniel. Let's look at how it could possibly be this guy. Let's discuss this for a moment. I don't know. Philip just says, check it out. I, I want you to meet him for yourself. I want you to sit at the table with him. I want you to sit down with him and look him eye to eye and you decide for you if it's him. That's, that's Philip's response. That, that's honestly one of the reasons <clears throat> that we have of, of the philosophy we have as a church. That, that we'll say, uh, you can belong before you believe. That I, I have spent my life trying to argue. Like my dad used to say I could argue with the barn door. Accurate. I would still argue. I'd probably argue about its color. I'm bad with colors. My wife makes fun of me. And I still argue. I still argue with her about colors. I'm wrong 99% of the time. And I still argue about which color, which is what, and what shade it is. That's how, that's how much I like to argue, even when I know I'm wrong. Like, I lose stuff. No, 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 let me rephrase that. My wife misplaces my things, and I, I am convinced that she moves my stuff around. Nine times out of ten, I moved it, and I find out afterwards, after I blamed her for moving my stuff, and I'm still convinced, where did you put that? Like, I didn't move it. Yeah, you did, because I'd left it right here. Nine times out of ten, I realized, no, no, I remember when I moved that now. Now that i found it, I put it in this secret spot that I knew I wouldn't forget, except for I did forget this time, but I won't forget next time. That's my bad. And I still argue. That's, I like to argue. I'll, I'll have discussions until I'm blue in the face like about anything you want to talk about, just random topics. I want to debate it. I want to talk about it. 
And as a pastor and as somebody who studied scripture and, and loves apologetics and loves arguing about whether Jesus is who he says he is, I've had conversations on, on long train rides with people, had conversations where we talked about it and they didn't, they didn't believe in Jesus, they didn't know about Jesus. And we had these long conversations about our faith and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that, that's kind of a pretty good presentation. Yeah, I, like, I believe in this thing. I've had arguments from anywhere I can have an argument, I've had an argument, try to prove who Jesus was to people. And if, if I'm honest, the number of people that I've at the end of that conversation been like, hey, are you ready to follow? It's like probably less than I can count on one hand. Like shamefully low. You're like, ooh, I can pick a different church. <laughs> yeah, that's, a really, that's a really bad numbers. Uh, yeah, it's, it's shamefully low. The number of times I've said, all right, now that we've had these long discussions, now that we've talked, you're ready to follow Jesus, and they follow Jesus, really low. However, I present the same arguments, the same discussions that I present right here on the stage. And last week, we had 15 people come to know Jesus. 15 people raised their hand to follow Jesus. Me by myself, very few. In this moment, when they can experience something and feel something and, and experience the tangible connection points of Jesus, it's not about how good I can argue or how good I can preach. It's about somebody experiencing something they haven't before. That at some level, you can tell me about it. We can discuss it. I can talk all day long about how good love feels. You can listen to all the songs you want about romantic love and what it means to lose somebody and how much it matters to them and all the feelings. But until you experience it, you don't really know. And there are people that come through these doors and they experience the touch points of Jesus and they start to see connections of who Jesus is and they raise their hand and commit their life to Christ because they decided to come and see. They felt it and experienced it for themselves and they've been wrestling and wondering and questioning and they were all Nathaniels and it wasn't because one person was great at everything. It was because all of us represented the body of Christ and all of a sudden they sat and they dined, they sat at the table of Jesus and couldn't deny what they had seen. And so for the skeptics in your life, I would, I would do like Philip. Just invite them to come and see. You can, you can have all the discussions. I still have the discussions. I'm not opposed to them. I'll have all the apologetics. I got the book recommendations for you that present the best apologetic arguments on people who doubt. But at the end of the day, if they're open, have them come and see. When they're not ready, when they're closed off, when they're not quite ready to even try coming and seeing, they're not, they don't have the questions just yet, just pray. Have the conversations, keep the dialogue open, love them where they're at, but just pray for the moment that they'll be open to come and see. Because ultimately, it'll be Jesus that shifts their heart. It won't be your arguments, it won't be your debates, it won't be how great you were, how great you seemed. It'll be Jesus who shifts their heart. And that's what happens for Nathaniel. Because Nathaniel was skeptical, but he was open to come and see. Nathaniel was the skeptic, and Philip said, but okay, but just come and see. And Nathaniel was like, whatever, what do I got to lose? And here's Nathaniel's response with Jesus or conversation with Jesus as uh, Nathaniel accepts Philip's invitation. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's the, this whole exchange is crazy to me. Like it does it, it's like, it's like it goes, it like escalates real quick. Like all of a sudden he's like, I don't believe this. Nothing good come out in Nazareth. He's like, I saw you on a fig tree. Rabbi, son of God, 
You know, like what, what did he, what happened for you to, to convert you? That does not seem like a conversation that would take a skeptic and move them into a believer. And yet for Nathaniel, it works. I've got a debate. I've got, a, or I've got a theory, if you will, that I'll present to you, but you can believe whatever you want. My theory is, is this, and it's based on some commentary that I'm going to nerd you out for just a second to fill you in. Um, when he says to, to Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit, I think it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I'm not, I don't see any other spots in scripture where Jesus brings accolades to somebody when he introduces. Not to Zacchaeus, not to Nicodemus, not to really anybody does he come in and be like, oh, you holy guy, oh, you guy who's no deceit. I don't see Jesus doing that to very many people. And what the commentators are saying that there is a a, a very rampant discussion about the word deceit uh, in the first century. Like a lot of rabbis are having conversations about what deceit means and about who it is. It would reference them to Jacob, um, and Jacob is like the father of all of Israel. His name gets changed to Israel, which is where we get the word Israelites. And uh, so Jacob is known as the deceiver. That's what Jacob stands for, is the deceiver. And yet they're all referencing back to uh, Psalm chapter 32, verse 2, that says, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay? So you have a backdrop of Nathaniel and, uh, and this idea of deceit and maybe what he was wrestling with as a skeptic and what's going on. And then Nathaniel asked him, how do you know me? Right? I, I think, I think my personal opinion is Nathaniel has got some internal wrestle that nobody else knows about. I think Nathaniel's going through some stuff in his own life that nobody else knows about. And when he asks, how do you, how do you know me? He's testing to find out if like, are you pointing to the secret thing I'm dealing with? Or like, do you know what I've been wrestling with? Do you know what I've been questioning about my own deceit and my own life? And then he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Uh, there, there's a lot of like kind of backdrop to this. Um, most, most argue that like one of the most common places to come and sit and study scripture was under the fig tree. It's kind of like a common phrase, go study under the fig tree. The other thing that was common is the idea of, of the fig tree is something sweet. It's like one of the only few plants that they have there that has really a sweet fruit to it. And so um, they would even say, if you were studying under your rabbi or you were learning something new from, uh, from scripture, you'd be under the fig tree. Like you're, you're, it's such good teaching. It's such good understanding. You're dripping from the fig tree. You're getting something sweet based on what your rabbi is teaching you. So here's my theory. My theory is that Nathaniel is wrestling with his own deceit. And when Jesus calls him out like that in a positive way, see, if, if, if Jesus calls him out like, hey, you amazing man of God, if you're a skeptic, if, if, you, if you tell me you're blessed, oh, bless, you are a blessed man, I'm so grateful for you, I immediately, as a skeptic, am thinking, what do you want from me? What are you trying to sell me on? I'm, I've got all my guards up. Like, back up. What are you trying to guard me on? Except for in this case, he's got like, but how do you know me? If I've been wrestling with my own struggles, my own sins, my own deceit, I'm like, wait, do you know what I've been questioning about my life? Do you, do you know something about me or you just mess? So like, how do, you, how do you know? Like, I think his question, I think Nathaniel's question is, let me see if you're, what you're saying is intentional. Are you speaking to my heart something that I've been wrestling with under the fig tree? The, the thing that I've been wrestling with in scripture, the thing that I've been wrestling with when I sit under my rabbi, are you seeing in me the thing that I've told nobody? Like, can anybody be blessed when they have deceit in their life? Psalm 32 says that they're blessed when they have no deceit. Can I be blessed if I've been living in deceit? Can I really have the blessings of God? If, if, if Jacob gets his name changed, what needs to happen in me for me to be able to receive all that God has for me? And maybe he's wrestling with what's going on in his life. 
And when Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I think it harkens to the moment where Nathaniel realizes, oh, you see me. You see my wrestle. You, you see my internal stuff. You see me in a way that nobody else saw me before. And, and whatever is taking place, whatever conversion moment takes place, whether it's my own theory of Nathaniel or just the fact that you look the Savior of the world in the eyes and he reads your soul, whatever happens in this moment, it changes Nathaniel because he sits at the table, he comes to dine, he looks Jesus in the face, and Nathaniel is shifted. This phrase, I saw you shifted him. Whatever he saw, whatever, whatever he's actually pointing, whether it's my theory or someone else's or your own, whatever worked for Nathaniel, being seen by the Messiah was sufficient. Sitting and dining and looking him in the eyes was a sufficient amount of, of, of conversion for Nathaniel to answer, I'm in. I'm done. Like I'll follow you to the ends of the earth because you're my rabbi. You're the son of God and you're the king of Israel. I will submit to you. You have seen into my inner soul. You have seen something in me that nobody else saw or you just saw me. The fact that you cared enough to see me under the fig tree was sufficient for Nathaniel and it changes him because he saw him. He came and he sat down with Jesus. He had a moment with Jesus. He had Jesus looking him in the eyes and said, I see you. And the beauty of scripture and the beauty of understanding and getting to know Jesus for yourself is that you'll find out Jesus sees you. You'll find things in scripture as you read through the gospels and you read through the New Testament, you'll see that he's talking to you. You'll see that he sees you with your wrestle. The moments where you have too much pride you'll read that scripture that needs to bring you to humility. In the moment where you just don't feel your value and you think you're not enough, you'll read about the moment where Jesus kneels down with the woman who's been caught in the act of prostitution and you'll realize, oh, he sees me. He values me. Something for him is just being seen. So wherever you're at, in your wrestle with your doubt, with your sin, Jesus sees you. And, and he invites you to see him. He invites you to, to come and see wherever you're at. And maybe, maybe you're here like Nathaniel still in your wrestle. Maybe you're still wrestling with your doubts and your questions and your struggles. And my invitation for you is to come and see. Just stay long enough to find out. Just stay long enough to find out if Jesus is who he says he is. Just ask enough questions. Get, get to the place where you can experience Jesus for yourself and find out if he really is who he says he is. Come, come to the table and dine with the one who wants to see you where you're at. But first, you've got to be able to come and see. Come, come and sit at the table. The sinners, the skeptics, the saints, all of us are on the same spot at the table. All of us get to the same spot at the table. And the question I have for us as we kind of wrestle through coming and seeing who Jesus is and coming and seeing what, what Jesus says to us is that both sides um, have trouble with the other side at the table. Like if Jesus is cool with the, the saint and the skeptic and the sinner and everybody else in between, shouldn't we be okay as well? Right? The, the saints have trouble with the people who are messy at the table. Right? Like, ah, do you really follow Jesus? You're still struggling with that sin? You're still wrestling with your doubts? Are, do, you really, do you really follow Jesus? And believe it or not, the skeptics have trouble with the saints at the table. It's like, do you really have a strong faith? Really? I mean, 
must be easy to just follow Jesus your whole life and never have any trauma in your life. Must be easy to have it all. And both of your parents are still together. Must be nice. Must be nice to come up with money in your life because I was broke and I was poor and it was a struggle for me. I didn't see Jesus. Must be nice. Both have trouble seeing other people at the table. Do you? Are you okay with the people who don't look like you, sound like you, act like you, seem like you, the people who make you uncomfortable? Are you okay being at the table with them? Because Jesus invites us all to the table to come and see. Jesus invites every single one of us to sit at the same table with the same Savior, with the same need to sit down and find out in our skepticism, in our trust, in our sin, in our wrestle, he invites all of us to sit. Just sit and dine and find out. Find out that Jesus is who he says he is. And if they're invited, if you're invited, we're all invited. We're all invited to the table. Are you okay that everybody's invited? Are you okay that somebody sits across from you and you don't understand their sin? Their sin looks different than yours. Their sin seems different than yours. Their, their lifestyle is different. Everything about them seems different. And Jesus says, listen, if, if they're not invited, then you wouldn't be able to be invited either. If, if they can't make it, then you can't make it because it's all level here. Like I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't create different patterns. He said like all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The fact that we're all here shows that we're all undeserving and we're all undeserving on equal playing field. And that's the good news. The good news is, is he invites us all to the table wherever we're at, whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're going through. The only question is if you're willing to sit at the table. If you're willing to come and, and take your spot, the seat that he invites you to at the table. I can find one exception. There's one exception where uh, it seems like in the Gospels and in the New Testament, um, we're not invited to the table. That one spot, uh, I would argue, is, is because we're trying to decide where we get to sit at the table. And if we're the ones dictating who gets what seat at the table, it means we think we're the head of the table. We've forgotten our position at the table. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, there's a whole group that, that Paul is writing to the uh, church in Corinthians. He's telling them, like, hey, if this person calls himself a brother or sister in Christ and they continue living in their sin, don't even eat with them. Don't let them come to the table. Expel the evil from among you is the phrase it uses. And for me, it's like, oh, where's that line? Where's that wrestle? Like, I have a wrestle, and when, when should I cut somebody off? And I would like to flip that question for today. When is it that I would get cut off? What would it be that I don't get invited to the table? Why, why is it that I could come to the table and Jesus would say, no, 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 there's not a seat here for you. I would argue the reason that that group of people aren't invited to the table, the reason the Pharisees aren't invited to the table, the reason the people, that people get disinvited from the table is when they try to take Jesus' seat at the table. Because if I have sin in my life and I try to justify it, if I have sin in my life and I try to justify my behavior, I try to justify the way that I'm hurting people in my life, I try to justify, justify the pain that I'm causing to the people around me. If I continue to decide that I'm okay and everybody else is wrong, then I've taken Jesus' seat at the table. I put myself as judge, jury, and executioner. I'm, I'm taking Jesus' seat. That's what's happening. If I show up and I tell you my sin is okay, I tell you that I'm the one that gets to decide what sin is okay. My sin is okay because I understand it. Your sin is real bad. Your sin is, uh, your sin is unacceptable. If I decide that I'm okay, then I get to decide I'm Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, that's my seat. This is my position. This is the place that I sit. So you can sit anywhere you want at this table as long as you don't try to take my seat. As long as you're okay with other people at the table, you're okay not justifying your sin. 
You can wrestle in your sin. You can wrestle in your skepticism. You can wrestle with your past and the trust issues that you can have. You can sit at the table in all your wrestles. Jesus says, come, come eat, come and see me, come and know me and find out that I am who I say I am. But just don't try to take my seat. And the question is for all of us to wrestle with is not who should I exclude from the table, but do I have areas in my life where I should be excluded? Where I've decided that my sin is okay. Where where, where my struggles, my skepticism, my stuff is okay, but theirs isn't. That's that's when, when we're trying to take his seat. We're trying to take his spot. We're trying to be him. There's, not, there's, there's a lot of room at the table. There's just not room for our ego at the table. There's not room for us thinking that we're impressive because it's level playing field at the table. Maybe you're thinking of those people that like, oh, do they really? No, no, they have a seat at the table. That one person that's struggling with, no, 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 they should have a seat at the table. As long as they're open to sit at the table and not take Jesus' seat, They have room at the table, and the more you're uncomfortable with them at the table, the more you need to lean in and be okay that you don't deserve to be at the table. I'll let them eat with Jesus because I don't deserve to eat with Jesus. Here's my prayer that I want to leave you with as we wrestle with our own struggle, our own moment, the fact that our sin isn't justified at the table. Here's a prayer that you might write down or take a picture of. God, may I never exclude anyone you've invited to the table, And may I always remember, I don't deserve to sit at your table. God, may I never exclude anyone you've invited to the table. And may I always remember, I don't deserve to sit at your table. None of us deserve to sit at the table. None of us deserve to be there. The more you realize that, the more table the open is, the, the more the table is open to you. Like that's a healthy place to be to be okay with the, the wrestle and the struggle of, of a messy table because there are messy people that Jesus is cleaning up and I just happen to be one of them. To be okay with that. And it, it doesn't mean anybody at the table gets to justify it, right? It's unhealthy when we start to justify it. When we start to decide our mess is okay and yours isn't, we're actually causing the table to have problems. We're causing the people to have problems. We're, we're enabling everybody else to continue in their sin when we justify ours. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that doesn't work. You can't take my seat. You can sit anywhere you want. You're just not the head of the table. And may we be the type of people that are always okay. Now, when we get there, Jesus' invite is to come and see. Jesus' invite is to sit at the table and find out that not because you deserve to be here, but because I called you here, you're going to see good things. You're going to see amazing things. You're going to be a part of an amazing move because you're here and I called you. See, for Nathaniel, uh, he ends like this for Nathaniel in his wrestle and whatever Nathaniel was going on in verse 50. Um, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Uh, what, what's taking place here is uh, John is pointing, or Jesus is pointing to Nathaniel back to a guy who was a deceiver. The, the person who got to see angels ascending and descending was Jacob. Jacob's name was the deceiver. Sometimes when we come to the table, we think we just get, we just get to come and eat just a little bit. Sometimes when we come to the table and we're really aware of how much we don't deserve, we, 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 we stop short. We're like, no, 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 I'll just eat the leftovers at the table. No, 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 I, 
my sin's too bad or my skepticism's too bad or, or I haven't been through enough. I haven't been through enough trauma to really deserve to really step into the, the meal that Jesus has prepared for me. I don't really deserve it because I'm a deceiver. I'm a sinner. I'm a skeptic. I'm a saint. My childhood was too good. I don't really have a good enough testimony to reach other people. I, I come to the table and I realize that I don't deserve it, but then we stop there. We stop at, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be here. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I made you a plate, not because you deserve it, because I want you to eat all of it. I want you to have life abundantly, is what Jesus says. I want you to be able to eat everything at the table, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, not because your label was correct, but because I prepared it for you, and I'm your heavenly Father who loves you and wants you to eat. Like, I want you to eat. I want you to see and experience all that I have in store for you. Jesus is pointing him back to Jacob the deceiver. He says, you're going to see what the deceiver saw. Jacob's phrase, his title, his sin did not disqualify him from seeing a powerful move of God. He got to see angels of God descending and ascending. And he's saying, you, Nathaniel, in your struggle, in your claims, in whatever you call yourself, it will not stop you from doing what I've called you to do. You'll get to see all the glory. You'll get to see all the stuff. And so maybe you're really comfortable being undeserving at the, at the table, but you're uncomfortable eating. And Jesus said, no, no, come and see. Come and see. Come sit at my table and, and partake of all of it. Be a part of all of it. In your struggles, in your questions, in your titles, in your past, in everything you've wrestled with, Jesus is saying, don't stop short. Don't stop just because you were, you were excited to just be at the table. No, continue to eat. Continue to take part in all that God has, has for you. Use your gifts. Use your calling. Use your skepticism. Use your titles. Use your past, your testimony. Use all of it. But eat at the table, not because you ever deserved the table, but you will see great things in me even when you didn't deserve it. Jacob, the deceiver, got his name changed and got to see the glory of God. You, whatever you came with, eat at the table. Because he didn't ask us if we deserved it. He feeds us anyways. He's just inviting you to come and see and partake of all that he's doing. Don't wait. Don't wait any longer, but come and see and partake of everything God wants for you. Let's pray. We're so glad you joined us for today's message. Our prayer is that God got the message you needed most today. If you're still here joining us and you're looking for an opportunity to connect to the Brick Church through giving, you can do that by texting the word BRICK to 45888. That's the word BRICK to 45888. The first time you do that, it's going to send you a link, give you the opportunity to connect that number to a credit card, debit card, or bank account. And as you connect with us and we partner together to reach people, we pray that God blesses you in your giving.